Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Uh, this is Jeff Boucher. Welcome back to Mind Space. And I am here with my partner in crime today, Garrett Nickel. How are you, Garrett? Good. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, we are, uh, we're, we've got a good guest here today. We got somebody who's, uh, got, uh, I guess you could say, uh, uh, new life in zombie, uh, fiction. Uh, zombie fiction is just a ever expanding, ever surging part of, uh, popular culture and storytelling. You know, I think people shocked to see how big it's gotten with things like, uh, not just the walking dead and the, uh, spinoffs, uh, two spinoff shows, but things like Zombieland and um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and iZombie and uh, 28 Days, 28 Days Later, and so many um, stories about people that just won't stay dead. Uh, I, you know, I love zombie movies, man, because they, uh, I love the, the way that they incorporate a lot of different themes and a lot of unexpected uh, commentaries on culture and society. And, uh, and I like when they eat people's brains, because that, that part's, that's, that's really good too. Uh, today we have, a, uh, our guest uh, is a guy that uh, grew up on a steady diet of brain eaters. Uh, he is the son of George A. Romero, and he is George C. Romero. Uh, don't ask about what happened to B. He is here and he's uh, got a, a zombie epic of his own that's unfolding. He's doing The Rise, which is being published by Heavy Metal. Uh, who also brings you this podcast. And the second issue is now on sale. Um, have you seen any of the comics yet, Garrett? I haven't. I, uh... They're really good. They're really, really good. Um, and I, I met George uh, recently. We were both guests on Dan Fogler's, uh, Fogler's Fiction Fest. And uh, I was really struck by uh, his voice and uh, the way he expresses himself and also his candor about how difficult it was growing up in the shadow of his father's <clears throat> reputation and, uh, and trying to come to grips with that legacy. I think those are really interesting things. So um, hopefully uh, we'll get through this without anybody getting bit in the skull. I mean, no promises, but hopefully. <laughs> exactly. It is, a, it is a scary world in which we live in. But uh, here's our interview with George C. Romero. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Mindspace. This is, uh, it's really a treat to have you. It's an honor to be here, man. I mean, you know, uh, we spoke a little bit for the first time not long ago. And, uh, you know, your your long and storied career of doing this is, uh, you know, something to be revered. And I got to tell you, it's an honor to, to sit here and chat with you. Oh, well, that's, that's extremely generous of you to say. You know, it's funny. I did a magazine article a couple years ago for a uh, Palm Springs Life magazine out in the desert about Coachella, the festival. And uh, I wrote this long piece and there was an introduction at the front and they, they called me the legendary 
music writer mm -hmm. uh, from the LA Times. And my first thought is, yeah, I am kind of fictional. I don't, you know, I don't really feel real. That, that, that's pretty good. Like, I didn't, ex I assumed that that's what they meant. Like shifty, hard to pin down, maybe mythical, uh, <laughs> doesn't show up, that guy. So, uh, but you're very, very kind. Legendary, I think, is probably an understatement, um, you know, and uh, I think infamous is probably a good uh, categorization for you as well. So it's good because uh, my mom always told me, she said when I was growing up, look, uh, odds are you'll be infamous before you ever become famous. And I said, good, because I don't want to be famous. Wow. <laughs> wow. Your mom sounds like a straight up gangster. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was totally. So I'm just trying to get my like if i if i close all of my internet browsers then i look like uh i'm planning to take over the world oh i got you yeah but it's all I about have, lighting everything yeah is about but lighting. If i have a brow there you go that's all right <laughs> that, that's soft and gentle looking nice i'm going for full sunshine over here yeah uh, <laughs> the uh you know there's a funny thing i read and i mentioned this to you when we spoke last uh which is when we met um through our mutual pal dan fogler but um, I read something that stuck in my head once uh, that in the long history of fiction and literature uh, that there are many genres uh, and they are created by all the people that, uh, you know, follow the pioneers. But there, there's only two genres, I believe, that are credited to individual people where one person is credited with creating an entire genre. And, you know, if you ask somebody who those people might be, you know, they might say Tolkien would be a good guess. But, you know, of course, fantasy, uh, he, he didn't do that on his own. There's plenty there before him. Um, there's some other, you know, ones that people might guess. But the, the answer that I heard was that the first is Edgar Allan Poe. And Poe, um, although known for his horror stuff, is credited with creating the, the whodunit, the, the private det or the detective story. Uh, where a readers presented all the facts in the context of the story and then has to decide who did it before the, the sleuth reveals the answer. And that's why the Mystery Writers of America, their awards called the Edgar, named in his honor. Uh, and the other was your pop, uh, George Romero, who introduced the modern um, the modern definition of zombies. I mean, zombies have been in films before. I mean, Bela Lugosi was in a 1931 movie, White Zombie, but those were sort of Caribbean zombies and, and voodoo zombies. Um, that's not what we're it's talking about. It's all about the tan. It's all about the tan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, it's 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 an awful pun, but, you know, your dad brought new life to, uh, you know, the, the idea of zombies and the concept of zombies. He did. Uh, that's a lot for one person to do, and it's also a lot uh, that's a lot of legacy um, for someone who has the same name, someone who is uh, in the field that you're in. That must be complicated growing up. Uh, it was. Um, it it was, uh, but there's no way I would have rather grown up. Um, you know, and I, it's funny, I've actually been talking about this a lot, but uh, lately, um, well, publicly, I guess, for the first time, uh, publicly and lately, uh, it seems like I've talked about it, you know, with the four walls of my creative prison for years but um <laughs> wow, that was uh you know beyond that uh beyond just the zombie thing i mean you know he did a lot for independent film i mean uh exactly. you know he he redefined uh, a lot about independent film in itself so i mean it's kind of like if you're going to double down on a legacy to have to kind of live with it's you know especially when you try to be an independent uh filmmaker you know it's like uh 
you know, I mean, what, what he did for independent film outside of the Hollywood system, when he did it, what he did for, uh, by creating the genre that, that he generally created, uh, and what he did for filmmakers and not only filmmakers, but creators everywhere, uh, became the stuff of legend, right? It became, um, he became, uh, how do I say this? He became, uh, he became more of an idea, right? He became this, institution really yeah. yeah yeah he did and uh and he did it while he was still alive which you know i think was always something that may have been hard for him to personally come to terms with i mean we only spoke uh about it a few times over over the time that we shared yeah um it was something that he didn't he always brushed off with a grin and a ah, don't worry nah, 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 nah you know that kind of thing yeah but there was no denying the fact that millions of people from poets to, uh, and I literally say this too all the time, uh, millions of people from poets to effects artists to uh, musicians and dancers and writers and filmmakers and, you know, name a creative genre out there and, and hell, some not even non-creatives. I mean, there are people who write doctorates about, uh, you know, <laughs> write their thesis papers about uh, zombies and about and about my father and yeah. you know and uh, it's uh, it's fucking crazy. Yeah, um, <laughs> I guess yeah, the best way to put it, you know. But I mean, he developed this metaphor that had been sort of the underground rumblings, I think, um, of uh, of an artistic community for a long time, and he kind of brought a lot of that bubbling to the surface with his commentary on everything from um you know uh, commercialism and capitalism to civil rights to everything in 1968 and he put it front and center in in the laps of regular movie going audiences you yeah. know who at the time a lot of the people who went even went to see the film um at, at the time they weren't certainly used to seeing films like that in the theater and they went to see you know went to see a movie expecting to walk out with this hey we just saw a movie as a family thing and you know there are stories of children crying in the seats and you know <laughs> i think it was uh, i think it was somebody in congress i think actually said he was dangerous and had to be stopped because filmmakers like him shouldn't be allowed to continue that's about the coolest thing that ever happened right <laughs> you know, that's what you can say that's what it that's what birthed my entire mantra of films used to be dangerous you know i mean and, and when i say that films films used to be dangerous they used to be there was a lot more to there was a lot more for filmmakers to say back then um because people i think were trying to get the argument going and trying to get the conversation going yeah. um and uh you know he did such a good job of that and i think from my own perspective that's probably you know, there's plenty of people who make zombie films. That's no secret. There's plenty of, you know, plenty of people who write zombie stuff. There's plenty of uh, successful people in the genre. Um, <clears throat> but I think that my perspective may have been a little different because, um, and I just talked about this yesterday, so it's kind of fresh in my head, but my perspective may have been a little bit different um, because he was my dad, you know, sure. and uh because my mother was uh basically she in the 50s and the 60s she was like she was an ad man right back in the madman days and sure. uh and then my dad was my dad so i was doomed to this sort of creative life right like my mom wanted me to be an accountant and that wasn't gonna fucking happen so um you know Same here i am my mom wanted me to be an accountant isn't that funny 
What like, did you, yeah? Right. She, you know, they used to have those figurines, like a, a like not Hummel, but like a, you know, like they would sell them at uh, high end stores, and they and they had them for different careers. Yeah, so, well, a CPA one. And I'm just staring at it, like you got to be kidding me, because like I can't even. Me and numbers are like we don't get along. So I didn't mean yeah. <laughs> not at all my granddad on my mom's side was a cpa and so i think that she you know he was sort of the patriarch of the family that i grew up in and uh and you North know star me to do that but uh that just certainly wasn't gonna fucking happen so i think um you know i think what started for for me was it it started as as the whole well this is what i'm gonna do and then it turned into the you know everybody expected me to be I guess one of those people who ran around saying, well, I'm George's kid, do this for me or give me that, or I deserve this. And I never did that. And I never even went to him and said, Hey, can you do this for me? I just, I just pursued my own thing. Um, and, and, you know, for a long time when I was younger, I used to say, ah, yeah, whatever, fuck it. I don't, I don't care uh, mm -hmm. about what he did. I just want to do my own thing, which was, there was half truth in that, right? Like the, the, the true side was that I just wanted to do my own thing. But the, the, the not true part was that how could I not care about what he did, right? Because not only did he inspire these millions, he inspired me, but mm -hmm. that I was dealing with this sort of like, how the fuck am I ever going to do this in this, in this sort of what I thought at the time was a shadow growing up. And that created a lot of problems for me, um, you know, when I was young, which it wasn't until I was much older and had a conversation with him and, and told him, you know, that I, that I never actually viewed it as a negative shadow that I realized it was a badge of honor to carry. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Sorry? Where did you grow up? Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh. Yeah, I figured. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to have a showbiz upbringing that far away from Hollywood or New York, and, and uh, it speaks to the independent film uh, and what your dad represents, the independent film and success, and all the careers that he launched or helped launch. I mean, it's like, you must, it must be like... Uh, uh, unbelievable to you if you walk down the street at like a uh you know a, a film festival or something like people probably come up to you left and right like tell you stories like that you probably receive them differently than you did um in the days when you had uh hadn't got these things uh, sort of cleared away it sounds like you've got them sort of uh, a handle on on uh, the way that they fit into your own life yeah well it took a while and it, it was um you know, it, it was definitely interesting, you know, for the longest time, even when I was, uh, you know, like in my early 20s, people would still talk to me like I was the five year old at the thing. Oh, did you know this about your dad? Did you know your dad? Did and I'd be like, yes, I know. <laughs> I've done this ride. I've got the tour. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you know, I think it just took me growing, uh, growing up and 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 finding a new perspective on on everything um, before I kind of realized um you know what i was here to do and and at the end of the day my name is george romero right it's tough you know like you think about the the people that grew up um and even if, if you just limit to, to celebrities in hollywood film and stuff but people like desi arnaz jr or uh you know um uh frank sinatra jr that's a tough one <laughs> like mm -hmm. uh it's it's a particular thing to have the same name i mean it's not the same last name i mean like nicholas coppola changed his name to nicholas cage to sort of sidestep the Coppola uh all the things that came with that name but he wasn't Francis Ford Coppola you know uh he was Nick Nicholas Coppola so uh to have the full name was even more um 
did did you at some point really wish that wasn't your first name or last name oh i've always been proud of my name i think um when i started out i started working um low-level pa jobs and stuff and and my first couple i did under uh, my mom's maiden name, just so people wouldn't think I was some whatever. And then uh, I went by my middle name for a very long time, Cameron Romero, because again, I was trying to find my own thing. And, you know, I think the thing that was the hardest part was that, you know, you introduced yourself as George Romero and people are like, um, well, you're not George Romero. Right. And, and, you know, and when you hear that enough, you're like, well, no, I, you start getting defensive. No, I'm not that George Romero, but that's, uh, I'm, you know, and it becomes this sort of like, and then you just get tired of it and you're like, you know what, fuck you, I am George Romero. Uh, I'm, I'm not the same George Romero and I'll never be the same George Romero and I never want to be the same George Romero, but I am George Romero and I can't help that uh, half of my DNA came from this motherfucker. So <laughs> and I say motherfucker with the most loving term, you know, at like, I, you know, yeah. and, uh, but, you know, it is what it is. And, and I think it just took a while for me to kind of learn how to, I heard this expression, Robert, Robert Rodriguez used this expression, actually, I, I'm, I love to cook and, uh, and I love to like, uh, I do a lot of woodworking and leather craft and I'm currently building a forge so we can, I can start teaching our son how to work with metal and stuff. Oh, wow, that's awesome. I do all this stuff to like nurture my creative side, right? Because when you're not working on something or if you are working on something and you're stuck or whatever, you know, you can always go do something else creative and as long as it nurtures things. That's right. uh, as long as it nurtures your overall creative then all that does is further the trust you have with your own inner creative right wow and so um i lost i absolutely lost my train of thought <laughs> you're talking about robert rodriguez and yeah yeah so he had this expression um i saw it on a cooking show um uh where he said i you, you know once you learn how to learn mm. and and i never really heard it put so simply and beautifully as i did when he said that um yeah. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, you know, as soon as you learn how to learn, then everything else becomes, uh, you know, easier to learn mm -hmm. because you, you identify, you trust your process and that's exactly what it was. And so I had to kind of learn how to learn, uh, with regard to my own process and, and, and what that process was. And, and I think to do that, I had to become okay with the fact that it was my process. And I, I think the hardest challenge for me was to break away from the personal identity of being nothing more than George's son, you know, um, because a lot of times over my life, I've been reduced to that mm -hmm. by others. And sure. so, you know, it's like you call somebody something long enough, they start to believe that or become it. So I think at an early age, that kind of has had an issue would became an issue with me. And so um, I basically just kind of had to, um, you know, I had to learn what my own creative identity was. And, and I, I certainly went on some journeys to figure that out. And once I came to terms with that, um, then everything else just kind of fell into place. And, and I became perfectly comfortable and okay uh, with the fact that nobody will ever offer me a, a Marvel film. And I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know that. Like, uh, there's people, like, uh, you never know. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's interesting though, when you talk about, uh, when you talk about sort of, uh, coming into your own, um, it also, it reminds me of, a, I think an experience that almost probably any writer has, um, is the, am I, you know, the, the act of writing and putting something out in public and, and, and either creating it or having it be in your, your, with your name on it, um, presumes that 
you are entitled to that platform. You are you are worthy of that audience. You are uh, ready for that amplification, and uh, that's a lot. You know, like uh, there's a lot of you know. Um, I've been trying to write fiction. I, I mentioned to you uh, for the first time in my life, and I've, I've you know been writing nonfiction since I was 17. But um, and I'm way past 21, as Muddy Waters says. Um, uh, but there's part of me still has to validate that uh, what I think matters or what I write is worth a shit, you know. And and um, that would be even harder if if when I type my name at the top, it was a name that. I already recognized as somebody else's or a name that other people recognized as being associated with somebody else. So yeah. like a, that would be that's where the C, I mean, that's why I leave the C there. You know, I mean, uh -huh. he, he became known as George A. Romero. And uh, I figured the easiest way to, to, to separate that is to leave the C for now. But, you know, it's interesting because um you said that's that the uh, question where the B is, is, where's the George B. Romero? <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think he's uh, buried in the desert somewhere. <laughs> behind you. Look out. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, no, not at all. You know, you're right. It's terrifying when you put anything out into the world. And the first time is even is, is the worst. It's like the biggest leap of faith. And, you know, and, and look, I don't know that I've ever felt entitled to any platform or audience. Um, I think I have, I, I, it's hard to how do you even how do you explain this for me if 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 i don't get that sort of anxiety feeling in my stomach as i'm drawing near to completing something then i feel like i'm doing it for the wrong reasons because i do what i do and i write what i write for me um even if i'm hired to do something by somebody else it's got to be it's got to be my voice and it's got to be something that i'm passionate about and and sometimes that means you have to find your passion for something that maybe wasn't yours when it was born if you're a hired gun on something but I mean for the most part I think you just have to the thing here's what I feel here's what I feel I'm entitled to I feel like I'm entitled to put my brain and my my heart and my spirit on a piece of paper and push it out and if it resonates with people, then I consider myself grateful for that. Mm -hmm. I consider myself grateful for every single person who has ever taken the time to write me a message, send me a letter, send me an email, call me, hit me up anywhere. And, you know, and I guess I, I maybe that comes from my father too, because he never, like, at least when I saw him and, and, and when we would be around, you know, he, he never, ever acted like, that guy that he could have acted like right you know? i mean of all the people out there who did what he did he could have been one of those people that was like you know go on somewhere you don't understand my fucking genius right but he wasn't ever that guy and you know and i think that that was probably one of the biggest things i ever learned from him was to never ever believe your own hype never believe anybody else's hype about you just stay true to your creative spirit and whatever that takes, whatever that means. If that means you walk away from deals, it means you walk away from deals. Yeah. If it means, um, if it means you, you, you walk away from a project that you're writing for years of your life. Um, and then one day you feel like it's betrayed you or you've betrayed it. Mm -hmm. Walk away. 
and and never ever uh, be ashamed of that as a creative. And I've done that. I've walked away from deals, particularly with Rise. I walked away from a lot of deals. Um, uh, so much to the point where I actually uh, I walked away from the project for about two years. Wow. Um, and then uh, it it just kept calling, and it it wouldn't shut up. It was like the telltale heart. Are you around Poe again? Oh, that's fantastic. Good callback. <laughs> it was always there was no matter what and it was one of those things where even even if i was like today's the day i'm gonna you know i would always leave a copy of the script somewhere mm. or i would leave you know a drawing somewhere or and it wouldn't shut up and that told me right there that um this is something that i have to do um you know and and i have to stay true to it and that's when i it was not long after that um that i, I actually met matt at heavy metal and um i mean what a platform you know and and joe illage and david Irwin and and the whole crew there and diga studios and and it was like um you know you question right you, as a creative we question for years i questioned and um to the point where i was like well i should have taken this deal or i should have taken that deal or right. why didn't i i'm beating myself up i could have been you know i could have made five other projects by now and i could have just sold out once and then been fine i could have just done it why didn't i fucking and then those all, all of you know all of those things they just swirl and they create this like fucking sandstorm in your brain and and then you meet somebody like Matt and you meet Diga and you meet Tommy at Diga and you meet Joe and Dave Irwin and you talk and you realize all those years you didn't understand why all of a sudden it all becomes clear because you find a group of people who fucking get it and they, they have respect for what you're trying to do. They have respect for the story and that respect comes from a love of the genre and a love of the legacy. Yeah, there's it's really important. Tribe is really important. You know, I um, I was working uh, most recently uh, as a, a senior editor over at uh, Deadline. Uh, you know, until uh, you know a few months back when I started this podcast, um, and before that, I had been in Entertainment Weekly. But the job that most people knew me for is at the LA Times. I was there for 21 years, and that ended back in uh, I quit in 20, I guess uh, 20. 13, 2014, and started Entertainment Weekly the next week. Um, but you know, when I I changed uh, jobs, what I I didn't realize what I was losing was tribe, and I and I lost it because it, uh, for EW, I had a great editor, I had uh, a lot of resources and, and cool platform, but I was on my own out here uh, in LA and would have phone call meetings with editors in New York and there'd be 15 people in the room and I don't know their voices and I don't know their jokes and I don't understand what that guy just said and am I still on is this thing working and you know um it's that's a real hard way to connect with people and and deadline there was just no time because every, every day you're just writing you know just non-stop um and until uh really until that conversation that we had uh at Fogler's Fiction Fest with Dan Fogler, uh, again, um, the mutual buddy. Um, that is the first time talking to all, all the guys on the call that I felt like I was part of a tribe again. And, and it, it struck me after the phone call, like, why did I enjoy that so much? And then it was, I felt like um, I, uh, in that conversation, a sense of belonging I had felt in quite a while and like a real comfort with it. And uh, so that's, 
I think that that kind of uh, speaks to the the quality of the people that you know you just mentioned uh, by name, and also probably speaks to like a really deep need in me and, and probably in you and a lot of people that um, try to fill pages with ideas. And uh, you know, Dan Fogler um, described it one time as like Animal House, hmm. and uh, you know the heavy metal experience. He said it's like right. Animal House, but in the best way, in all the good ways, right? right. And Was it over uh, when the Germans bomb Pearl Harbor? No, <laughs> but you're absolutely right, and it's uh, and tribe is a good word for it. And you know, I talk a lot about this on our own show on the Indie Brigade about community and the sense of community. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and tribe community, the same thing. But it's um, it's, you, you know, and, and to define that a little bit more, you know, I think tribe sums it up a lot better. But like in terms of, of the way I've used community, you know, we've got our community at large. We've got our community of acquaintances and then we've got our personal community. And that community um, is, you know, consists of people you would die for, basically. Right. On some right. level. Right. Yeah. People you'd take a bullet for, maybe, maybe not in the chest or the face, but, you know, right. people you would still get shot for people you would go into, into, you know, go into the fray with, I guess. Totally lose a finger. And, for yeah. Totally lose a finger. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the feeling that comes from uh, what has happened over at Heavy Metal. It's, uh, it's, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced when it comes to uh, working with, with any group of, of people. Mm -hmm. And we all look out for each other and we all throw ideas around and we all bounce off of each other. And, and, we, and none of us are afraid to say, hey, that is a stupid fucking idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, Although I haven't heard anybody say that. <laughs> you know, or, hey, that's a great idea, you know? Um, and uh, and it's, it's really, it's, it's incredible. And I think that that sense of community has, has, has deteriorated quickly over mm -hmm. the last maybe 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe maybe longer but I mean it feels like it it was sort of on a downward spiral and then all of a sudden that just accelerated and the sense of community is gone and now everybody out there is a, a filmmaker or a creator or a you know I'm a this I'm a I'm an army of one right I'm a creative army of one I'm, right. I make all of my blah 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 and you know that's a and and I think for folks like us that was something growing up that that was never anything that wasn't possible when I was coming up. Right. Like it just was not possible. You needed a hundred people minimum to get a movie made. Right. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. You know, and, but and you need so I, press I to have access to a world audience. Uh, now you don't. Right. Right. You I mean, I used to be able to now, now you see people, uh, and it's like, uh, you, you see some of these folks, I mean, you see kids out there, with an iPhone and a, and a Mac and they're making stuff that looks like Michael Bay did it. Right. Um, right. Or they're, they're, they're out there with an iPhone and a Mac and they're, they're, they're making something that looks like an old Hitchcock film or, you know, uh, you run the spectrum. Right. And then you got people out there making George Romero style zombie stuff. Right. And some of it's really great and some of it's not, but you know, but they're still doing it. Yeah, they are. <laughs> But there's no, there's no real community. I mean, even nowadays, like if people don't want to be told that they're, they need work or they need practice, they don't want to be told uh, that they need to hone their craft. But at the same time, that's exactly what they need. And 
they need a community of people to, uh, you know, to use one of Matt's favorite expressions, you know, rising, rising tides lift all ships, right? Yeah. So that's kind of what the Indy Brigade is. I'm working on turning that into, along with all the wonderful people over there. Um, we are working on turning the Indy Brigade into sort of a rising tide, you know, with the idea being that we want to lift all the ships of all of the independent creators who are involved and who, who tune in on a regular basis to hear what we have to say. Oh, wow. Uh, it's admirable and good. And, and it's needed too, because I, I know like in journalism, um, one of the things that, I mean, I've, I learned so much from so many people. You know, I started at the, the LA Times when I was 21 and just grew up in that newsroom um, with all these amazing journalists near within a stone's throw. And, but I didn't throw stones at them because uh, they would have made me, they would have fired me if I did that. But, um, and I think of all the things I learned and now I don't know where people learn stuff because, you know, I didn't learn much in, I, I shouldn't say I didn't learn much in, in school. I did, but I didn't learn a lot about the day-to-day -day craft and uh, the ins and outs of being a journalist and, and writing at a high level. Uh, I learned that from people telling me, hey, no, no, don't do that. I did that, don't do that. And we, we have institutional amnesia now, you know, in a lot of ways, because um, instead of having a system that, a pipeline of professional uh, experiences, uh, we've replaced that with social media in a sense. So what we have is a pipeline of acquaintances and, and uh, uh, superficial interactions, but we don't have like rigid um, schooling. We don't have apprenticeship in, uh, uh, in a way. No, not at all. And, and you know, what we have now is a community of people who um, will redefine the rules of a semicolon. And then you, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously stripping it down to a simple example here, but you know, we've got a community of where one person will misuse something like a semicolon and then a community will rally around it. And then that becomes the new rule of the semicolon. Right. But that's always been the case. I mean, that's, you know, like I always tell people language is a river, not a mountain, you know, uh, like uh, decimated. It, it means reduced by 10%. Right. That's what that word means, but not anymore. Now it means, fucked up they killed us all you know like uh you know, scorched earth now yeah i mean i can yeah. tell you there's so many you know um embattled uh means preparing for battle that's not the way people use it now now it means like shit's going you're under yeah. fire you know um you know masterful means to do it in a heavy-handed way uh it doesn't mean to do it at a sublime level you know there's so many things but but that's the nature of language the fickle it's the flying fickle figure of uh phonics had to come up with something with an f <laughs> it's true though but it's it's true but i mean i think it's also indicative of what we're talking about which is the fact that you know community is uh to use your metaphor of language being a river not a, a mountain i feel like community has become more of a uh you know the the definition of community is more like a river than a mountain you know it's yeah. no longer about um you know like you said mentors and apprentices it's no longer about learning a craft it's about going on youtube learning how to figuring something out doing it and then declaring yourself an expert and then a whole bunch of other people watch a different youtube video and then there's your new panel of experts right yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting it does recalibrate the, the the sort of the calculus of of uh, credibility and, and of notoriety um you know I, I had all these front page stories uh, in a major metropolitan daily newspaper, as they say. Uh, but if you ask my son, 
he would shrug and yeah and then but say hey what about that youtube video your dad did with leonard nimoy it's got three million hits that to him is like that's bigger deal than anything that's bigger deal than all the other articles i wrote put together right Um, so the metrics are are uh are intriguing um and unsettling sometimes because because i'm not uh I'm, 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 I fear change and I lash out against it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that, you know, I, I think a lot of folks like you and me do that. And I think that, you know, the hardest part, um, for, for me is to turn the world off. Um, Mm. you know, so I find myself doing that. Like I, I haven't watched tell, I can't remember the last time I sat down and watched TV. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll, you know, I'll turn on Netflix and check out it chef show right john favreau's sure. cooking show or you mean like out something like that but, TV. like you you don't cable you don't you don't watch cable so. i haven't had cable in years yeah and and, and life is so much better for it right. you know um but then you know uh as your community expands the community voice gets louder and the noise gets louder and that's the stuff that that's i think harder and harder to uh block out when it comes to being a creative but then you know then like you said about the the youtube views you know then like i'm doing this podcast and you know and 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 we had amazing numbers there uh for a while and then they started to fall off and you know then it became speculating about why aren't we getting the numbers why aren't we getting the views right and 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 i can't let it be about that right because even if we get 200 views then i know that at least those 200 people are tuning in and and something in that episode is going to resonate with 200 people. Now I know like in today's world, like that's the 200 people, fuck you. That's nothing. Right. But where I come from and where you come from, right. For 200 people to actually dote on your every word for or, 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 or <laughs> to even be able to hear what you're saying. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, sure. Uh, or to to agree with you or disagree with you or have discourse about it or have it just a conversation which is what a lot of our episodes are like right so and obviously I'm exaggerating there but I mean you know at the end of the day if 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 anything that we have to offer or say reaches 10 people right then I'm grateful Mm -hmm. I'm grateful that those 10 people have heard something it might not, you know, they might've heard, you know, the way I cook my mashed potatoes, right. but it, you know, but that's 10 it's people, all gravy. right? <laughs> it's all gravy. I don't know if what I'm saying makes any sense, but no, it does. I, yeah. And the, know, integrity, the authenticity of it too. I feel like there's a schizophrenia that comes with our, our inner creatives. And I think that that's something that has to be embraced. And, you know, and I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to take in everything around me. And I hate being zeroed in, like on my phone, I, you know, because there's this world that exists and there's these people and everybody at the store has a different perspective on the same day that you all are walking through together. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and to be able to talk to anybody like that on that level today and to be able to find a common ground or a common topic with anybody, especially when it comes to something so, so subjective, like creativity right um is gift man yeah yeah very well said you're exactly right um it, it, it's interesting about uh distraction and and uh we live in just 
you know, uh, an age when, um, you know, distraction is, is uh, you know, the definition of our, our, our social interaction almost now um, and our digital lives. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm fascinated, people like uh, Christopher Nolan, um, he, you know, first time I met him, um, he mentioned that, you know, he didn't have an email address because I said, can I send you an email? I was like, I, I don't have an email address. I, I don't do email. And I, he doesn't have a cell phone, you know. Um, um, that's fascinating. And, and the reason he gives is, is uh, a fairly simple one. He goes, I want to have big ideas. And you don't start with a big idea. You get to a big idea. Uh, and, um, you know, the I've seen Margaret Atwood say the, the greatest enemy of every writer is an interruption. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you don't go back to where you were, you go back to the bottom, you know, to get to the top, then you turn around and go back and start from over again. Um, those are fascinating things. Of course, I think Christopher Nolan probably has somebody that does email for him now. So that that's okay. That's like, it's a little easier. But uh, I think there's a valuable lesson in that because I, I know that the more time I spend you know, doom scrolling through Twitter in recent months, uh, or the more time I spend um, kind of on a, a digital safari going down rabbit holes on the internet, uh, the less I get done on this book I'm supposed to be writing, you know? Yeah, I uh, I turn off, I, I have to, I, I, I write in my wood shop hmm. now. Um, and yes, I write on my phone, but it goes in airplane mode. Um, it gets, you know, so that I can use the application without the distractions coming in. Uh, and I have a little keyboard for it and I sit at my table saw and I smoke my cigarettes and I, and I write on my, uh, on my table saw because there's, there's, there's always a smell of, of some freshly cut wood, or there's a project over there that our son is working on, on the, the leather station, or there's, you know, a project over here that's like, um, like a beautiful uh, hickory burl from a tree that's sitting there, right? Huh. And and these are the things that I have to surround myself with because it really is true. The greatest enemy of a writer is a distraction. I mean, I you can be sitting there and have the entire conversation between two people in your head. You can know it. You could wake up with it. It could come to you in a dream. You could wake up with you could be going, 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 going. And one little thing happens. Your fucking phone rings or that Twitter dings. And all of a sudden like you you lose the thread man and it's the hardest thing to like pick up where you, you now that's not to say you can't go straight back to it and continue right but odds are what you continue is not going to be what you sat down to do that's right and at that's that right. point you're compromising so uh to take that uh the greatest enemy of a writer is distraction one step further i would say that um distraction is the mother of compromise when it comes to writing yeah so yeah as you say that, it makes me think like, you know, ideas are almost like, um, you know, a ship that you spot on the horizon. And if you turn away, you know, you, you look back, you might find it again, but you might not. And if you do, it's not gonna be in the same place. And, and it's not gonna be, you might not have the same angle and- uh, perspective on it has know. changed. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting how uh, uh, ephemeral it is. Uh, now for you, uh, even while some things are elusive, some things stick with us. And then, and you were talking about rise and how uh, the persistence of it. Uh, tell tell our listeners a little bit more about it and uh, where it where you uh, how you feel about it now and, and what uh, when you size it up. 
You mean like tell them a little bit about the the story or the genesis of it or yeah, a little bit about both if that's okay. Oh, well, sure. I mean the rise. I mean, uh, I guess I can talk a little bit more freely about it now since the first issue is out, and I think the second issue is out in heavy metal now as of uh, yesterday. I think. I think it is. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's a story that <clears throat> you know, and it's funny. We talk a lot about perspective and things like that um i carried this story with me my whole life and i never realized it um wow. you know and and again being george's kid you know uh, most of the time when i was trying to get started i would be like you know, I, you know it was unbelievable i would get meetings and i would think i was getting these meetings because i developed this great savvy right <laughs> and and you know i'd be like oh i got this great meeting with so-and-so and you know, and somebody would be like, ah, oh, they just want your dad. And I'd be like, no, I got the meeting, right? And I'd go in and they'd say, oh, we love you. We love the idea of working with you. Um, what's your dad's number? We want to write that down, oh. we, you know? And so then that happened a lot, right? And so that then that turned into, um, hey, uh, do you want to do a zombie movie? 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 And I was <laughs> no 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 and no okay but what about doing a zombie movie <laughs> How about a movie and, uh, you know and it was like here's the thing we want to do we want to remake night of living dead and we'd love for you to do it so that it could be it could be your dad's name on it yeah because you have the same name boy that's offensive on like six different levels <laughs> <laughs> you know and uh, and i would always just say no you know, no, 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 I'm not going to do a zombie. And then it became like my heels were dug in and people would be like, you need to do a zombie movie. And I'd be like, fuck you. Yeah. And, you know, do you want to do a zombie? You know, and it got to the point they wouldn't even get the sentence out. I'd be like, do you want to get smacked in the face today? Because <laughs> that's what's coming. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, and it even and then it started getting like people would get trickier about it. And hey, we love this. Let's, you know, let's get into bed and let's, you know, start doing contracts and things like that. And then three months down the road. So, you know, we our marketing department says we really need your dad on this, you know. <laughs> All right. Fuck you, yeah. too. You know, um, that rom-com we were doing, I was thinking, how about we change it to zombie movie? Yeah. And, and, oh. But a George, but George Romero's zombie movie, you know, yeah. and uh, and and then people just wanting to, like, leave the initials out altogether and just, well, if we just put George Romero on it, we'll market it. We won't say anything about you. We're just going to put George Romero on it. And then the back of the cover will be all about like what your dad did. And, you know, and, and, and it's like, no, I'm not going to do these things for you, you know. And uh, so it became it became the struggle. Right. And uh, and then finally, I had this meeting one day and I, had, I used to have an office at a place called The Lot over there on Formosa in LA. Oh yeah. And it was one of the oldest studios, maybe not the first studio, you know, and uh, in the city and it was a great little place. And I had this awesome little shitty office and, uh, and I, <laughs> I went out and I had this meeting and this guy says to me, uh, so zombies, and I could feel like my fists clenching and like my blood pressure rising. And I was ready to like jump across the table with this guy. And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, look, your, your dad is your dad. What he did is what he did. I'm sure everybody asks you if you want to do a zombie movie, and I don't want to ask you that. And I said, okay, rage subsiding, you know. And he <laughs> said, <laughs> he says, I am anyway. <laughs> yeah, and he says, if you were going to do a zombie film, you know, rage building again, 
um, what would you want to do? And that was the first time anybody ever asked me a question like that. Wow. And I said, uh, and it kind of shook me and threw me a little bit. Right. And I'll never forget. I said, well, that's, that's an interesting question. And thank you very much for asking that. You're officially the first person to ever ask me that question in, wow. those, in those words. Uh, and I said, um, and believe it or not, there is an answer. Give me a, you know, a couple days and I'll, I'll send you an email. And, um, you know, ultimately over the next couple of days, there are reasons why that particular conversation with that person never continued. But um, what did happen was that the rise was born. Mm. I, I went home and I wrote draft one that day that night that like I didn't sleep for like three or four days um, and it came out and it and I realized at that point that I had carried this story with me my entire life um, from the perspective of not only a huge George A. Romero fan and a zombie fan and a horror fan mm -hmm. but from the perspective of his son and somebody who had um again perspective right i i got to see him react mm -hmm. behind closed doors mm -hmm. to things and and that gave me a perspective i think that uh birthed this story the rise which uh when i first wrote it i called it origins um and it was this big thing i wouldn't talk about and then uh, over time it just grew and grew and grew and uh into what it is now, which is a, a comic book. And there's a feature that we're developing and a potential series we're developing and some other things like a tabletop role-playing game and all of these things, but they're all, they're all born from this one glimpse at the horizon, at that ship on the horizon. Yeah. That um, every time somebody would say, do you want to do a zombie movie? I would take my eyes off of it. And then one day somebody asked me that question differently and I never lost sight of it again. And it is this uh, sort of epic tale that takes place for a six year period, um, well before Night of the Living Dead ever happened. Mm -hmm. And it deals with, um, it deals with a lot of elements in the, in the zombie world that have never been addressed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's funny because as soon as word creeped out on the internet that this was, this was a project I was working on, well, everything else I was doing stopped, right? Dropped dead. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Um, all anybody wanted to talk about was this and, you know, go get your dad and get him to sign on to it and we'll make it. Uh, which then became the next evolution of the fight, right? Like, ah, you know, my it would be like, well, we read it and it's great, but it's not a George A. Romero zombie film. And so that became like my marketing tagline, you know, not <laughs> yeah. a George A. Romero zombie film. You know? <laughs> not your father's zombie movie yeah that's great so um it's really it's the most personal thing i've ever written um and uh and i think that people are gonna love it but you know i mean people have have speculated all over the internet and said you know well the last thing we need is answers to questions that were never asked and who the fuck cares about what you have to say blah 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 and you know and it was like i don't give a shit i gotta say it right and i'm gonna yeah. say it my way and i'm gonna say it uh, in my voice, and I'm going to say it with love and respect to not only my father, but to uh, the legacy and to what he did. And most importantly, 
I think even more important um, than all of that is I'm going to say it in my own voice to the fans and to the people who I believe that when they see it um, and read it, it's going to resonate loudly. So it's not anything that any of them will see coming. I feel like all those conversations you had with all those people that were asking you those uh, uh, sort of ill-framed and and wrong-headed you know, pitches. I feel like you should have just said brains and just bit them in the, the soul. <laughs> like, I, I think that, that at some point that would have been like just an awesome response. I mean, it probably would have led to some jail time uh, or a, a healthy stay in an institution, but it'd be very satisfying, I think. Well, yeah. You know, it's funny too because like the brains thing came after night, you know, that came from yeah. the return films. Right. And uh, and there's there's a case of history rewriting itself, right? Because my father is credited with with a lot of that. Yeah. And you know and uh, and but you know it's funny because his creatures were also quite um, even in night they were still uh, somewhat sentient. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, like the first one we've ever seen, problem solves. Right. Right. Yeah. And, that's right. Uh, he problem solves he uses he uses crude tools to try to problem solve to you know and and this is something that's um, yeah you know <laughs> that's that's lost that's been lost over time right yeah um no, so and they were also ghouls mm-hmm. you know? i mean they were they were called ghouls they were not called zombies you know right um yeah so and it's funny the de- how definitions change over time but uh, but you know, I think that that's all, that's all done out of love and that's all done out of respect for him and what he, what he started. And that's something that the rise is, uh, it is, it is truly, um, if I could write a love letter to, to an entire group of millions of people, this would be it. So, yeah. and I hope that they, that when it comes out, I hope that people take it as such. And I hope that people love it as much as I have loved the entire process, because it's funny. I talk about these stories about, you know, the journey and everything, but man, I wouldn't trade a fucking, I wouldn't trade a second of it. Yeah. Right. Like I wouldn't trade a second of the fight. I wouldn't trade a second of the arguments. I wouldn't trade a second of any of it because all of that is the journey that has brought it to where it is now. And then with heavy metal, the playing field has just been opened up and 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 all of that stuff that has been poured into it all the energy and anger and love and arguments and everything every bit of fight that it's taken to get here mm-hmm. uh it wouldn't be what it's going to be if it hadn't taken the path it's taken to get here that's interesting now they say uh to be human is to suffer uh and the, our suffering is individual uh and without it we wouldn't be human that's right so and we, we wouldn't be specific humans we'd be you know sort of bland uh uninteresting people um uh you know one of the things that's interesting about the zombie uh genre is that uh for a long time in the 50s well in the 50s and 60s we had a lot of b movies where um cultural things were pointed to as threats or or uh, uh you know, different technology, like if you look at Godzilla, and, and, you know, uh, as a reaction to Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombing, or if you look at, you know, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, or, uh, you know, even some of the, uh, like, Day of the Dolphins and Day of the Triffids and Day of the, you know, other days. Um, 
but but with dead one of the things is interesting is that the audience it wasn't just telling the things that could get them it the audience became the threat that's right know? um with invasion by snatchers in a different way but also but but the the idea that um that the damage is done and um you know consumer culture and sort of the numbing of modern society and all the inequities of it and the dehumanizing of it um that that turns the masses into the threat um that's some scary shit dude i mean like dracula like okay he's he, he, not a good thing to run into on a on a uh, a dark night but there's only one of them and you know you you got a chance to get, be somewhere else but when the zombies are out that's you can't that's right it's hard to relax it's the hordes right it's the hordes that get you and it's the it's the threat that it's your mailman or your brother or your child or your parent or your neighbor or someone you otherwise trust on some level right 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 um that now that's not necessarily saying i somebody you it's only people you trust with your life it's people you trust with universal truths that you're raised with mm. right like yeah. um you don't nobody thinks that their mailman is gonna do anything except deliver the mail and some nice conversation right hopefully um that's a universal truth that we're all kind of, you know, depending on where you're raised, if you're raised anywhere outside of a major city, yeah. odds are you, you or your parents or somebody, you know, will at some point in your life recount a pleasant experience with their mailman right. or the pharmacist or the butcher, or, you know what I mean? And sure. these are the universal truths that are instilled in generations. And especially back then that, um, that gets shattered with zombies yeah right they get shattered and 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 one-on-one -on -one, no big deal again you're all right if you just come up on one zombie odds are you can turn left and it will not go after you right mm -hmm. but it's yeah, when right. there's it's when there's like a mall full of them right yeah. and and there's these hordes that you can't escape and i think that's where the whole uh commentary on consumerism came in because uh you know consumerism became the, the mob and and it, and it became impossible to outrun. Yeah, it is. And and if you if uh, if you slow down, then you're part of it. You know, and that's the, that's the sad thing too is that like even if once you're victimized, uh, then you're still kind of on the hook because you become part of the thing that uh, that killed you. Um, that's right. Let me get your hot takes quick on a couple of quick things. I'll say something. You just tell me maybe a one word or two like reaction. Fast zombies. Mm -mm. man you just made me twitch a little yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> i see them i see them in movies yeah oh yeah 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 you have seen the um you know i have i have one thing to say to that i think it's romero versus uh, romero zombies um and and non-romero zombies okay all right we'll leave it at that um zombie romance i've seen romance zombies they it's not the sexiest of supernatural guys. Everybody needs love. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Everybody needs love. Um, is there one thing that, you know, that maybe your dad was uh, particularly proud of that was either off kilter or uh, unexpected that uh, you could point to? Absolutely. Uh, his arroz con pollo. Ah, the chicken and rice. Chicken and rice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was uh, it was amazing, and it was passed down to him through the the Romeros, and um, uh, and he I'm very very lucky that at one point many 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 years ago he was he gave me the recipe and and watching him make it was uh it was like watching him edit a film or direct a scene it was it was about the craft and the process of of making it to him and it was one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen because it was a creative side of him outside of the the, the world of film yeah. Um, and it was like, it was, I, I think it was the day that it was when I realized that creativity is much more about just the process of it, as opposed to, okay, you do this job and it's a creative job. Creativity was part of his DNA and part of his spirit. And I think that that, that's, that was it. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. A recipe for success. And, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, a lot of, a lot of creative nourishment. Well, that's just fantastic. Uh, I think it, uh, I see a, a cookbook in your future, my friends, a cookbook and a creative guide all put together. You know, I've been hearing that a lot because I, I've been posting because a lot of my uh, posts about the brigade and things, they're, they're not showing up as much on social. So I've just been testing the waters and, and like a raptor at the fence, you know, and I've just <laughs> food pictures and uh, of stuff that I make and people are starting to flip out and ask me to put out some recipes. So I might do that because cooking yeah. is a huge part of my life and my creative process. So. I might that's do that. Fantastic. That's yeah. great. Well, I look forward to you cooking me a meal someday, my friend, because I, I look I forward to, to it eat. too. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on Mindspace, and uh, it's a treat to 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 talk to you. And best of luck with the rise, and uh, I hope you'll join us again. Absolutely, absolutely, anytime, Jeff. It is an honor to speak with you, and thank you for having me. Cheers. And uh, I look forward to having you on the Indie Brigade uh, tomorrow. It's a promise. All right, that sounds good. All right, thanks. Yeah. Well, that was a really interesting interview. It was interesting how he mentioned, you know, like living in his father's shadow and then trying to branch out of it and then eventually coming out of it. Um, I just found that interesting because I think when I first saw the name pop up in the email, I kind of had like a double take second. I was like, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. This <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's a name that really does resonate, you know, that last name. It, it, it conjures up uh, immediate uh, mm -hmm. associations, you know. Well, it's not even the last name like the first name george romero all that like even julian lennon at least he has julian you know yeah he's a little differentiation but <laughs> that's right a little bit of room but like i was saying in the interview like being frank sinatra jr that's tough i mean nancy yeah. sinatra that's tough too but not as tough as frank sinatra jr uh it's a it's a complicated thing i can't quite honestly i can't imagine naming um uh, my child a junior it's just it seems I, I never even considered it uh, just because it seems so um, uh, makes them inherently derivative, uh, mm -hmm. at least in perception. Uh, but that's probably just my insensitivity talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Evan's gone, but I believe the essential shelf is still here. That's right. That's right. Um, we are still doing the essential shelf every week. Going to pick a, a graphic novel or a comic book collection um, that people should read. A lot of people want to get into comics. A lot of people uh, are intrigued by them, but don't know where to start. It can be a little off-putting. Uh, and since I have uh, uh, spent a lot of time reading them, and because I have sparkling judgment, uh, it seems appropriate for me to tell you what uh, you could be reading next. And this week I have one that uh, I really, really heartily recommend. And uh, lately I've been trying to do some 
uh, graphic novels that aren't superhero stuff. There's a lot of different comic books. Um, when people hear comic books, they think superheroes. Uh, ever since Superman premiered back in June of 1938, he's sort of set the standard for uh, the cape crowd. Um, but comics today, there's, there's all kinds that are well beyond the, the tights and flights genre. And uh, there's crime, there's war, there's horror, uh, there's memoir, all kinds of stuff. And the one that uh, I'm picking today uh, is called uh, Parker. And uh, it is by the late, great Darwin Cook, um, who was a very good friend of mine and uh, who left us way too early. Uh, and I miss him dearly. He's a phenomenal talent. A lot of people will know from his work for DC Comics, especially New Frontier, which was the great uh, Justice League and other DC characters uh, in a sort of the Jet Age tale uh, that was just so masterfully done. And Parker is just as good as that one and maybe even better. And um, it's, uh, I have the Martini edition, which I highly recommend if you can get your hands on one. It's the, it's got a slipcase hardcover and it's really a beautiful collection. Uh, you can find it in other formats though, and also in individual comics, um, if you have to, if you can track them all down. But uh, they're the story of a guy named Parker, uh, who has been in numerous films, uh, often not under that name, uh, sometimes under that name. But uh, it, it's, uh, the character was created by uh, Richard Stark, uh, also known as Donald Westlake. Uh, and uh, Darwin Cook, as I said, did this adaptation, both uh, uh, the artwork and the writing, um, but also worked closely with the original author himself. And it's a, it's a hard-bitten story about uh, uh, tough guys with hard faces who make hard decisions in a gunmetal world. Uh, it's, uh, it's ruthless, bare-knuckle, double cross kind of story and it follows a, a guy who is uh wronged by the mob and then he goes on a uh one-man wrecking crew mission to make sure that uh every single person who is responsible or even slightly associated with his slight uh ends up in a very very bad place but uh the book is beautifully done the artwork is gorgeous and uh it seems uh sort of different shades of gray and blue and green. It looks like uh, drowning victim blue, I'd say, actually. Um, and uh, his use of, of uh, design, the composition, uh, use of negative space. It's just uh, a cartoonist at the height of his powers. Darwin uh, was a, a generational talent. And uh, if you get a chance, do check out Parker, uh, which is you know one of his masterpieces and uh, something that he was extremely proud of and you should be uh, uh, looking out for and you'll be proud to have it on your shelf. So that's this week's Essential Shelf. And that is published uh, by the good folks at IDW Publishing, by the way. Uh, check out IDW, uh, their San Diego-based publisher does a lot of tremendous legacy publishing um, and uh, re uh, returns to masterpieces from the past. So uh, good job, IDW and uh good job darwin well, it sounds interesting is that the first uh idw book on the shelf you know 
I'm not sure, but I believe so. I believe so. I can't think of another one that springs to mind. And uh, if so, it's uh, long overdue. I, I really like the folks down there and what they've done. And um, they've really uh, surged in the marketplace since their, their arrival. And uh, the great hallmark of IDW to date is just a uh, really profound archival spirit and uh, a very, very strong um, record of good taste. They really, they pick, they pick their shots well, so. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. Were you saying, you said something about it's, uh, the character's been in several movies before? Yeah, the, uh, you know, uh, it, the movie Point Blank, uh, the, the okay. classic, yeah, uh, that is that character uh, with James Coburn uh, in, in the role. And then it would be remade a couple times under different names. Uh, Payback uh, with Mel Gibson uh, is the same character essentially. Um, then uh, Jason Statham played him in a movie called Parker um, not that long ago. Um, there's been a few others, but the original author, um, you know, uh, Richard Stark or Donald Westlake, um, Stark was the uh, pseudonym, really. Uh, withheld his uh, full approval or involvement or engagement with uh, different versions. Not so in this case. Uh, he worked with Darwin um, and uh, I remember talking to Darwin while he was in the process of putting the, the, the book together and um, that interaction with one of his idols and, and what it meant to um, an aging writer who uh, was uh, got to revisit some of his best stuff and, and have this uh, new uh, collaborative uh, relationship with a, a, a dynamic talent. It, it meant a lot to Darwin. It meant a lot um, to to Westlake, and uh, it means a lot to people that uh, check it out. Cool, cool. Uh, can you say that title one more time? Sure. It's called Parker, and that's uh, by the great Darwin Cook, and uh, it's from IDW Publishing, the San Diego publisher, and it should be available if you uh, search it out on the internet, and again, the Martini edition, it's the top notch version of it. Um, and uh, I'll tell you, it's worth the investments and it has a lot of really cool extras in it. Portraits, um, uh, behind the scenes stuff, scripts, things like that. Cool, I guess urge the listeners to check that out. And unless you have anything else, I guess uh, we'll see you next week. I think that should do it, and uh, thanks for uh, thanks for getting steering the ship this week, and uh, let's do it again next time. Sounds good. All right, take care.